Now, we want to see the depths of Jesus's humiliation uh, this afternoon, having come to the Lord's table, because the humiliation of Christ is, gives us some sense of the extent in which Jesus has loved us. The more we study Christ in his humiliation, the more we understand the depth of his own care for us. And by incarnation, what I mean, boys and girls, is that Jesus is the eternal son. He's always been the son. Christ has always been the son of God from eternity with the father and the spirit. But Jesus, when he came into this world as a man, he entered into his humiliation. That is, becoming a man was a part of the beginnings of his own sufferings. And so you need to understand that Jesus added to his divine nature. He's always been God, but he added to the divine nature, a human nature. Uh, He became like you and me in every way. Uh, except for one fundamental difference, and that is that he did not have the same sin nature that you and I had. He, being the eternal son of God, sanctified his human nature at conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the humiliation of Christ begins with Jesus coming into this world. He would always remain the son of God, but he added to that nature a second nature. That is our humanity. Jesus took to himself a real body and a real soul. And he is in that state uh, today. He's one person in two distinct natures, as your catechism teaches. Now, as the catechism mentions, also, he was born in a low condition, born in a stable, laid in an animal trough. Even though he came from the line of David, both by way of his mother uh, biologically and also by his father legally. He is of the son of David. He is... The one to whom all the promises of David are yes and amen. And yet he was willing to suffer. He didn't come and live as a king, but he gave himself as a servant for us. Think about this. I want you to think with me here about Jesus and his sufferings for a bit. We've come to the table and now I want us to think more on the suffering of our Savior uh, this afternoon. First of all, I want us to think about how the Lord Jesus Christ lived in obscurity for 30 years. Most of Jesus's life was lived in utter obscurity. We focus, of course, rightly on the last three years of his life. But the man was 33 years old when he was given over to the cross. And so for 30 years, even though he's the son of God, even though he by his divine nature, controlled the very universe in which we live, he was content to live as a very humble tradesman. Jesus also was willing to be misunderstood. He was misunderstood by his family. He was misunderstood by his neighbors. You remember even when Jesus was but a 12-year-old, he's misunderstood by his parents. He was at his father's house and he goes missing And his parents don't know where to look. And they finally do come back to the temple. And he said, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? We see the misunderstanding when the neighbors uh, hear Jesus preach. And yet they try to drive him off the cliff. Uh, Who does this guy think he is? He's misunderstood by his brothers and his mother. They came to try and take him away. They thought... He had maybe gotten a little fanatical. Maybe he's lost his mind. He's got this messianic complex here. Um, A little surprising with regard to Mary, given all that was told about Jesus at the 
beginning of Jesus's life. But nevertheless, uh, 30 years had gone by since those promises were given to her. And I think that's uh, something we should realize there. Um, Not be too hard on Mary. Jesus was denied ordinary domestic comforts. Most men had a place to stay. They had a house. Even animals. God gives animals places to stay. Jesus said that he gave foxes holes and birds. They have nests. But Jesus had no place of his own to call home. Jesus had no wife, no children. You think about Adam there in paradise. And God gives him a garden and gives him everything that he needs. And yet gives him a wife as a help to him in the garden. And yet here is the second Adam, not living in paradise, living in a sin-cursed world, left to the oppression of the, the devil, being tempted by him in every way, being a natural and mature man, and yet Christ has no helpmate, a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying, preparing for the beginnings of his inaugural Ministry, And then even once his ministry commences, it's, it's met almost immediately with the opposition of the world, the flesh and the devil. The Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking God's commandment with regard to the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath. You think of how they slandered Jesus, accusing him of using Satan's power to do the miracles he was doing. They accused Jesus of being a drunk And a glutton because he uh, hung out with those who were sinners. They charged him with guilt by association because he befriended traitors, tax collectors, prostitutes. Uh, They charged him with the complicity of their sinful deeds. They sought to entrap Jesus with questions about the law, with also questions about taxes to Caesar. They plotted against Jesus. They planned to kill him. They paid 30 silver pieces to betray him and to have him betrayed and to have him arrested. They arrest him and they treat him like a common criminal. They charge him with blasphemy because he rightly under oath admitted he was the son of God. They mock him as a king. You remember how Pilate's forces, uh, they put a, a purple robe around Jesus' shoulders. They pressed down a crown of thorns upon his head. They bow down. They give him a a reed and they mock him. They bow and fake homage to him. King of the Jews. They condemn him, even though Pilate found him innocent. Yet the Roman authorities handed him over to be executed. They exchanged in his place a murderer. Jesus was whipped in the back with Lashes. He was forced to carry his own cross until exhaustion set in and somebody else had to carry the cross. Uh, The hands of Jesus that touched lepers and healed those lepers that mixed the clay and spittle and put it on the eyes of the blind, that fingers that went into the ears of the deaf and caused them to hear. Those hands were put upon the wood and the nails were driven Through those hands, the feet that were blessed for bringing good news, feet that were wept over by forgiven sinners and anointed with perfume, they were pierced with nails. They raised Jesus up on the cross. 
They mocked him even while he was hanging in his own agony, saying, if you're the son of God, come down and we'll believe on you. He saved others. He can't seem to save himself today. If you are the son of God, come down. And he had the power, of course, to do so. He could have called upon legions of angels to rescue him off that cross, boys and girls. And yet Jesus stayed on the cross for his love for you. He suffered under the wrath of God. All the human sufferings uh, perpetrated by men were nothing really when you compare to what awaited him. That Jesus would drink the, the wrath of his heavenly father. He would drink the cup of the wine of his wrath. And he would own the billions of sins of sinners on his own person. He, he would be treated as the worst of sinners. God would judge him with infinite condemnation for those sins. And I say all this because Jesus is saying here that as I have loved you, that you love one another and that the world would know about this gospel message by our love for one another. Why did I go into so much detail about the life of our Savior? Because I want you to see something of the height and the depth and width of God's love for you. I want you to be impressed, overwhelmed, maybe even dismayed at how much God loves you. That he would lay down his life, the life of his son for you. Friends, this is the love of Jesus Christ. This is the standard which Jesus is exhorting us to love each other. The love of Christ is the measure by which we evaluate our thoughts, our words, our actions towards others. And to whatever degree we fall short of the perfect love of Jesus Christ demonstrated towards us, we sin against the Lord by not showing that to others. You think about how petty we are in our own thoughts and motives compared to the sinless love of God in Jesus Christ. You think about when we gain a sense of Christ's love for us, when we awaken out of our Christian slumber that we tend to fall into like the disciples in Gethsemane. The love of Jesus fills us with tremendous joy. When we think about the sufferings of Christ, we feel loved by God. The love humbles us, though. It makes us feel small. It makes us feel petty. We feel sometimes the weight of our sin. And when we look at the cost of it. And we see afresh how vastly superior Jesus' love for us is than our love for people. And we mourn over the coldness of our own heart. And yet still Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, does he? His love has to be the measure of our love. Anything less is sin in his perfect eyes. Think about this with me. The... the the love of Jesus Christ is our standard of love for others. We see this, uh, for example, let me take you back to 1 Corinthians 11, speaking about the Lord's Supper. It's dealt with in this chapter. And in verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul says this, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, Corinthians. I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. What's going on? Well, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that 
those who are, are, are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And Paul is saying, this is a mess here. That this supper by which we see the love of Jesus Christ for us, which is the measure of how we are to love one another. And yet the Corinthian church is doing what? They are living contrarily to that which is signified in the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, they're doing this. And so we see that this becomes a means of judgment against the church. The division was spilling over into the observance of the sacrament. And God, in turn, was judging them. Jesus says, excuse me, Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Well, what does he do by examining himself? He is to examine, among other things, his love for others. This is why sometimes we'll even advise that people not take of the Lord's Supper if they are out of fellowship with others in the church and they need to restore that or have it restored as, as much as one can themselves. We're to be at peace with all men insofar as it's up to us. So they were publicly and visibly supposing to be confessing their unity in Christ, their mutual love in Jesus Christ, even as they took of the same bread and the same wine signifying the unity. But instead, they were turning the Lord's meal into a common meal. Remember that the supper was observed the night he commanded us to love one another. And so the Corinthians were, in a sense, falsely testifying by their poor behavior that Jesus loved them poorly. And so God's judgment fell on them. And we see in verse 30, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep because they had brought judgment on themselves. Now, I want to say just a few things by way of application before we go home. I have four applications for us. Before we go home, number one, let's consider the life of Jesus and his death for you. And by that, what I mean is this. Each of us, let us try to get some what the Puritans called lively sense of his love. Now, what do they mean by a lively sense of his love? That is, the Puritans were very good at admonishing and exhorting their hearers to not just hear the sermon, but to try and profit from the sermon, to try and think about the things that were said to them in the sermon after the sermon was done and over, and that they would meditate on these things, the things that were preached, they would meditate upon them so as that it would begin to affect them, that their emotions, their will would become warmer towards Christ. To meditate until there was a a little kindling, a flame there. To reflect on what Jesus has done for you by taking eternal punishment. So I want to encourage you to, with me, this afternoon, maybe this evening, to think on 
the standard of Christ's love for us in his sufferings, his humiliation, in his death, to see if we can't get a livelier sense of love for others based on Christ's love for us. Number two, measure your life and your love for the church and her members and others outside the church against the love of Christ. Here again, I'll use the Puritan language. Seek to get a sense of how far you have to go to attain to the level of Christ's love. That is, as we meditate on Christ's love for us, let's also meditate on how indifferent and cold our love for others sometimes can be. And that we pray by the grace of God that that love which Jesus has demonstrated for us in the Gospels uh, might affect our hearts so that We could, out of that grace, love others the way we ought to love. And we could see this broken down in a number of practical ways. For example, you could consider where your own life fails to measure in the life of Jesus's love for you. For example, husbands, you you are told to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So husbands, maybe one application for you is to examine the love of Jesus Christ for you and your love for your wife. The sufferings of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, your sufferings and humiliation for your wife. Maybe wives, it could be that you need to measure the love of Jesus Christ with the patience of yourself towards your children. Look at how patient Christ has been towards you. That you might also be affected with how you ought to be dealing with others. Maybe it's in the relationship with another believer that needs to improve and we need to think about that relationship in light of the love of Christ. Children, maybe you too could consider how well you treat your siblings, for example, your brothers and sisters, in light of Christ, your elder brother's treatment of you. You might consider what your elder brother Jesus has been for you and consider what kind of elder brother or sister have you been to say younger siblings in your family. Maybe for us who are uh, elders here uh, that we consider the love of Christ for the church as the head of the church and elders that we uh, maybe need to compare our say prayer life for the church uh, compared to Jesus's intercessory ministry for us. I think it's Robert Murray McShane. I can't remember, but one of one, somebody, one of our fathers said that he who loves me best loves me in the prayer closet. The, the person who loves me best is the person who's praying, interceding. And I say that uh, for myself as a minister and to my fellow elders, that if we've fallen out of the habit of intercessory prayer for the people here, that we think about Jesus' intercessory ministry for us, and we, we do likewise for the church. So consider gaining a lively sense of Jesus' love for you. Secondly, gain a sense of how far you have to go to attain to the level of Christ's love for you. Number three, number three, seek the grace that Jesus Christ offers you today in the Lord's Supper, which we have partaken of. You know, Paul calls the meal which we just had the cup of blessing. 
It's a sacrament, not just a memorial to remember by. It is something of a memorial, but it's more than a memorial. It, it is grace conveyed, grace given. The grace of Christ that is available in preaching is like the grace that is conveyed and given at the table. We must receive it by faith. It's not something that happens just simply automatically by eating and drinking. But as we reflect on the table, as we meditate on the sufferings of Christ, as we think about the blessing, God's love letter coming to us in this table, uh, as we think about the covenant meal that God gives us here, whereby we are called his. I love you. I've given my son for you. Eat this. Drink this. This is to assure you of my love for you. This is to demonstrate again and again and again and again that you are a child of the covenant. You belong to Christ and Christ is in you. And so Paul called it a, a blessing and it, it is a sacrament to fortify and to nourish and to strengthen your love. We, we come to the table to grow in love. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 You'll notice how the Apostle Paul connects the love of Jesus Christ with the love for one another in the church in Ephesians chapter four. Let me just turn there in Ephesians chapter three and verse 14. Paul says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that he would grant you a court notice there, every ethnicity and nationality there from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend what is with all the saints, the breadth, length, height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Which surpasses knowledge. And notice how he goes there from that, connecting the, the knowing something of the love of Jesus Christ. What does he say then just a few verses down in chapter four? He tells the church to love each other. He says with humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is what's he emphasizing? He's emphasizing the mutual unity of the church based on our love that we have uh, in Christ Jesus. So we are to preserve that love and strengthen that love in the church through the spirit. Also in the uh, epistle of James in the fourth chapter fourth chapter of James. Notice here that Paul exhorts the church to uh, avoid quarrels brought on by lust. Uh, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Do you you lust? You do not have you commit murder you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel because you do not have, because you do not ask. And so notice here that James exhorts them to avoid this. 
And how do they do this? Well, they do it, verse 5 and 6, by the Spirit of God who gives us grace. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. And so we are to come to the table for the grace that we have need of. Verse 6 and following. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in honor. And then finally, we close with this. That we improve on the grace which God has given us in the sacrament today and in the preaching of the word. We need to improve upon it. One of the things that we need to do, I think a lot of Christians know that they need to prepare for the Lord's table. But actually, the Westminster Divines also encourage us after taking of the Lord's table to improve upon what was given to us at the Lord's table, that we don't squander it in thoughtless conversation or cares and concerns with the world or money or business. But we focus on Christ. We try to improve On the Lord's table, what grace we've been given at the Lord's table, we try to improve upon that after having come to the table. And how do we do that? Well, we focus on Christ. We focus on God's people. And so we we fellowship with one another. We pray for one another. We meditate upon the works of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for you. May God help us to do so even This Lord's Day. Amen. Let's pray.